Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. If you'll just follow along while I read. For thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you were not willing. And you said, No, we will flee on horses. Therefore you shall flee. And we will ride on swift horses. Therefore those who pursue you shall be swift. One thousand will flee at the threat of one man. You will flee at the threat of five until you are left as a flag on a mountaintop and as a signal on a hill. Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you. And therefore He waits on high to have compassion on you for the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for Him. Lord, You promised Your Spirit would be present abiding in the hearts of all those who believe. And so we pray, Lord, that Your Spirit would rise up in us and teach. I pray, Father, for anyone who has not made a statement of faith in Jesus, that Your Spirit would descend on them and they would hear. Lord, we ask that You would teach us of Your will, something that we have heard so many times, I have heard so many times, and yet again have been brought back to this week. And I pray You'll bless our hearts as we listen. And that Your Word would get in deep. And that You would affect, Father, our lifestyles. And affect our understanding. And help us to move in the power of Your Spirit. And teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, John Linus came in on... Wednesday night, I asked him how he was doing. He said, I couldn't be better. He said, I just love being here on Sunday evenings and on Wednesday evenings. He said, it's a different vibe. It's so restful. He said, I don't think people realize what they're missing who don't come into the barn in the evenings. It's just different. It's really special. And I I said, yeah. Yeah, I agree, John. Unfortunately, I had to tell him of a decision that had been just made earlier that day, and I share it with you all, and that is that this is the last Sunday we're going to do a Sunday evening service. And uh, and I know some are disappointed with that, but but here's how it came down. We were we met at our staff meeting, and I brought up to the staff. I said, you know, I'm I'm getting kind of wiped out here um, on Sundays, and I'm wondering if maybe we could consider moving the time back a little bit, maybe move it back to 6:30 or 7, so that just a little bit more day. And as we began to talk about it, several names were brought up of people who are helping, people who are serving, people who are here at 7, 6.30 in the morning and here all the way until 8 o'clock at night. And there was just a sense from the staff that there's a weariness factor going on here. People getting a little burned out by this. And as we talked about this, I realized the toll that this thing's been taking on me as well. And the toll that it's been taking on my family, my my little ones, who I don't even see on Sundays, um, unless they're sitting here in, in the barn. And the more we talked about it, the more we prayed about it, the more I realized, you know, we're we're just we're trying to do something that maybe we just need not do right now. So this will be the last Sunday we have a Sunday night service. It's funny, I think we're probably the only church in the area who's uh, reducing the number of services before Resurrection Sunday. <laughs> But you do what God tells you to do, and you try not to get out ahead of Him. I think about the story in Joshua of the conquest of Ai. 
Maybe you recall that story where Joshua and the people were all ready to fight. They're in the land. They want to take on. They've already won the battle of Jericho, so they're feeling pretty confident and self-assured. And they decide, we're going to go up against the city of Ai. And they go up, and they are routed. And then they took it back to the Lord, and they prayed. And the Lord said, okay, I'm going to give you Ai, but you need to come to me first before you head off all half-cocked and certain in yourselves, but not in me. And I think there's an issue here that we need to deal with, I need to deal with. Something that, um, I've preached Isaiah 30 verse 15 a number of times over the years. I'm still absorbing this. The Holy One of Israel has said, in repentance and rest you will be saved, in quietness and trust is your strength. But there's a tension there. For me as a pastor, perhaps for you as a believer, Paul says, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. What if you do grow weary? What if you're involved in service or ministry or church of some kind and and you're getting kind of tired of it? You're feeling a little bit worn out. I mean, what is the standard by which we as followers of Jesus learn to serve and minister and work? And how do we keep from becoming weary in this? These are really soothing words. In repentance and rest you will be saved. Oh, I hear that and think, yeah, let it wash over me, Lord. In quietness and trust is my strength. Oh, preach it, Lord. But I read that and... I close my Bible and for a few minutes it impacts me until I start to realize what's got to get done. There's a kingdom to build, right? There's a church to grow. We've got to get to the business. Jesus is coming. Look busy. Are, are you one of those who, if, if you knew Jesus was coming today, you'd kind of amp up your ministry a bit just so He would see you involved and, you know, as if He never saw what you did yesterday or the whole month prior, you know, just today. No, I'm, I'm a busy guy. Yeah. And we're going to fool you, Lord. But you know, the thing is, I really do want to be found a faithful servant. I want to be found serving the Lord. How do I do that and not get wiped out? How many of you secretly find yourselves exhausted by the shoulds and the oughts of church? How many Marthas here among us are frustrated by the Marys? Look over in Luke chapter 10. Keep your finger in Isaiah 30. You've heard the story, many of you, probably more than once. But I think we can relate to this. It resonates with a lot of people. I think we want to be like Mary. But we tend to be like Martha. If you are a Mary, you're frustrating the rest of us. (laughs) Listen to the story. Now as they were traveling, verse 38, Luke chapter 10, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations. And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. See, this is what happens when we are in the Martha mindset is we end up getting frustrated with Jesus over all the Marys sitting around doing nothing. We end up frustrated with Jesus because we feel like we're doing the serving while we have brothers and sisters just sitting at His feet, soaking up the Word, you know, taking up space. And they just love Jesus so much. I love Him too, but i got stuff to do, you know. And we get frustrated. 
But you know what? The problem is not the Marys among us. The problem is that we're confusing, I believe, serving for calling. We end up serving because we think that's what God wants us to do. But have we stopped and asked Him? What if we're doing something Jesus never asked us to do? We'll end up weary. We will be frustrated even in the ministry. Now, back with Mary and Martha, John gives us some insight to Jesus' feeling for Martha. Over in the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verse 5, it tells us Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. These are three of Jesus' favorite people. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And so he's hanging at their house, and Martha's upset and stressed out and trying to get things done. And verse 41, the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. Only one thing's necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Jesus says, sit at my feet. Listen to my word. That's the good part. The rest of it, it's busyness. Maybe that's why God created man on day six. You know what that means, don't you? It means that we were created on the sixth day and our very first full day on planet Earth was a holiday. We started on holiday, gang. We started with Shabbat. The seventh day, a day of rest. Man is created. He wakes up the next morning and God says, Hey, you want to take a break? (laughs) Okay. God did the work for six days and then invited you, invited me, invited Adam and Eve to rest. Let's start out relaxing. (laughs) I love that. Because God throughout all of history has continued to call you and to call me back to Sabbath. Back to rest. Back to simply sitting at His feet, listening to His Word. Being in His presence. That's the good part. We hear it constantly from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 tells us the government will rest on the shoulders of the Prince of Peace. He's the Prince of Peace. He says there will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace. In fact, Isaiah uses the word peace and rest to define the coming kingdom of Christ. He says in chapter 14, verse 7, the whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into shouts of joy. (coughs) Isaiah 26, verse 3, the steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace. Remember that? Shalom, shalom. Because He trusts in you. Isaiah 28, verse 12. He said to them, Here is rest. Give rest to the weary. And here is repose. But they would not listen. Here's rest. And I found in my life that it is hard to listen. It is hard to rest when there's so much to be done. So much going on around me. And some even feel like if they stop and rest, they're just going to die. Israel knows that feeling. Israel knows the feeling well. Even today, if they retire, they may die. If they kick back, they may lose it all. Consider that. Israel's in that place. Even now, their existence threatened by Iran. It's not new for the people of Israel. Their existence has been threatened by every major nation, it seems like, in history. Egypt threatened them, Assyria threatened them, Babylon threatened them, they keep coming back, Rome threatened them. Back again, they return. And now they're in a place where if they don't stay vigilant, they could lose it all. 
You relate to that? You feel like if you don't stay vigilant, you're just going to lose it all? I mean, what do you do if your very existence is on the line? Kick back on the Mediterranean with a corona? Not if you were listening last week. Assyria was the hostile menace in the days of Isaiah. In fact, in chapter 31, what's going on, the backstory to all of this, is Assyria has already wiped out northern Israel. So this is after 722 B.C., after northern Israel. Their, their cousins, their family, the people of Judah knew the people of northern Israel. Yeah, they were two kingdoms, but you know when you, when you split a people into two kingdoms, there's still connections and relationships. Well, all of northern Israel now is gone. Samaria destroyed. The people, history. And Judah in the south may even at this time when Isaiah is speaking these words be surrounded by the Assyrians there in Jerusalem. It's a horrible situation. And so the leadership in Jerusalem begin to do what they feel is necessary to protect themselves. They're wrong, but they're acting in the flesh like so often we can do. Look at verse 1. Woe to the rebellious children. Verse 1 of Isaiah 30. Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan, but not mine, and make an alliance, but not of my spirit. That's a good verse for us to work through in our brains a bit. You ever find yourself executing a plan that is not his? Making an alliance not of his spirit? He says, in order to add sin to sin, who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me, to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh? And to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. God says, Israel, it's not your ingenuity that's going to protect and save you. It's my spirit. Zechariah would prophesy, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Zechariah 4.6 But the indictment of Judah here in seeking to go down to Egypt, make an alliance there, and find some protection against Assyria... The indictment is in verse 15 at the end of the verse, but you were not willing. Why were they not willing? Well, cut them some slack here. If you were the leadership in Israel, what would you do? You have a prophet here who is saying to you, look, I know you see the entire camp, 180,000 Assyrians encamped outside of Jerusalem. I realize that. I see that that's going on. And I realize that the same army just wiped out northern Israel. But just go to Bible study. Serious. Just, why don't you guys just pray? Really? That's great. Um, don't have time right now. <laughs> There's too much of a threat to what's going on in my life. Sennacherib has his sights set on Judah. Judah is shaken in their boots. And Isaiah, you want us to stop and rest in the Lord? Come on. We need an immediate, tangible defense. We need something to fix the problem. And I know none of you have ever been there. But I have many times. And it's ironic, instead of trusting the Lord, what they're doing, and we'll see this more Wednesday night as we study through chapter 30, but what they're doing is going down to Egypt for help. Going to the very people that enslaved them for 400 years. Going to Pharaoh, the offspring of the guy who killed their children. And this is what we do. Egypt in the Bible, remember this is always a picture of the world. And note this, you always go up to Jerusalem, but you go down to Egypt. And they go down to Egypt seeking an alliance in the same way so often, instead of going up to the Lord, I go down to the world to get help. 
I look for worldly help, worldly ideas, worldly strategies instead of just resting before the Lord. And John tells us in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I mean, do you do that? Do you trust the designs of man and perhaps counselors and businesses and self-help books and other ideas that come from man in the world when we're struggling, when we're afraid, when we're unsure of our future instead of just resting in the Lord? Isaiah details the predictable result of going down to Egypt. In verse 16, chapter 30, he says, You said, no, we will flee on horses. Therefore, you will. You will flee. We'll ride on swift horses. Therefore, those who pursue you shall be swift. You know, going faster isn't going to get it done. Your pursuers will just go faster. And he says, 1,000 will flee at the threat of one. You will all flee at the threat of five. Until your left is a flag on a mountaintop and as a signal on a hill. And see what he's talking about and what Israel was doing is they're getting, they're getting freaked out. So they're amping up. They're increasing their diplomacy. They're looking for answers. They're, they're trying to make it work. They're looking for self-protection. And when we face challenges in life, how often do we amp up rather than sit back? I mean, my, my first reaction when I get bad news or challenging news of some kind, is rarely just to go, okay, cool. (laughs) Typically, I'm out the door or on the phone or looking for an immediate solution when what I need is repentance and rest and quietness and trust. Think about those four words. In verse 15, he says, In repentance and rest you will be saved, and quietness and trust is your strength. What does that mean? Repentance is the Hebrew word shuba, which means, and I love this, it literally means to withdraw or retire. It's only used one time as repentance. The rest of the time, you see this word in the Hebrew Scriptures, it's retirement. It's withdrawing. What the Lord is saying is withdraw to me. Come back to me. Retire from your work. How many people, I wonder over the years, have put their nose to the grindstone for years and years and years to develop, to to grow a nest egg of retirement, and then they drop dead before they can enjoy it? How many others don't enjoy retirement at all? Because they're so preconditioned to hard work. And their first day of retirement, they find themselves going nuts because they've got to get stuff done. Got to keep working. And for the same reason, gang, many people miss the rest of God. The invitation to rest where God says, retire in me. Hebrews chapter 4, and the whole chapter of Hebrews 4 is marvelous, but just a few verses here. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 9 says, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That is Israel. Well, why does there remain a Sabbath rest? Because they haven't entered it yet. It's still there. The offer of rest for the people of Israel, even today, is still there and has not been received and accepted. It has not been entered. And so the Hebrew writer says in verse 10 of chapter 4, For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Therefore, he says, ironically, he says, Let's be diligent, work hard to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Repentance is retirement. 
Retirement from work. Gang, when I gave my life to Jesus, guess what? I retired from sin. I retired from all the old life. I retired from that stuff that made life hard and wearisome. I gave that up. And I entered into the rest of God. Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Peter said, Therefore repent and return so your sins may be wiped away and in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. He didn't say, Repent. Give your life to Jesus because we need help in the ministries at the church. We're running short on people. we got to get people saved so we can get the job done. He doesn't say that. Repent that you might be Refreshed. I love that. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And so, repentance here, gang. Repentance is retirement. In repentance, in retiring from your work, and in rest, he says, you will be saved. The word rest is nahat in the Hebrew, and it means to descend into quietness. To descend into quietness. Rest is not just retirement, or repentance is retirement. Rest is lying down in tranquility. I love that picture. In fact, David paints it better than anybody else. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Come lie down. Come lie down and just rest. Put down your arms. Put down your stress. Lie down. He doesn't even say sit down. He says lie down. Rest. In repentance and rest. In retirement and in lying down, I will be saved. That's what he's saying. There's a place in Israel, a new favorite place of mine, Everywhere we went in Israel, I told the group, this is my favorite place in all of Israel. (laughs) Well, this one is one of them. It's a serene and beautiful and picturesque mountain pass. It comes out on the western shores of the Sea of Galilee. Up on one side is great Mount Arbel, which is one of the most notable mountains because of just of its angle there above the Galilee. To the left is a small village. Today it's called Migdal. Historically, Magdala where Mary Magdalene was from. And this mountain pass comes through. There's a stream that runs through it as well. And this was the pass we know that Jesus took when walking back and forth, getting in and out of the Galilee. In fact, this is the pass that we know He took about a 2 days journey walking from Nazareth. And, and He proclaimed to everybody, I'm Messiah! And my ministry has begun. He quotes from Isaiah the prophet. You remember what the Jewish people did there? In the synagogue, they freaked out. They pushed him out to the very edge of town, probably Mount Precipice, which is quite a drop, gang. And so he's up there on the top, and the Bible tells us, Luke 4.30, passing through their midst, he went his way. Which says something of the power and the authority of Jesus. He just walks right through them. But he leaves Nazareth and he begins this journey to the Galilee. He ends up in the Arbel Pass. This serene and beautiful place. I wonder what he was thinking. In that long, lonely, quiet walk from Nazareth, having been rejected by his own people, his own hometown, and now coming into, into the Galilee, what's he thinking? You know what he didn't do? He didn't lie down in self-pity. What he did was he, he laid it all down in rest in trust in the Lord 
You see, to lie down in tranquility means that you know God's will be done. Do you know that? Do you realize that in spite of all of our many efforts, whatever they may be, God's will is going to be accomplished with or without you? It's going to happen. And Jesus knew that. He knew that God's will would be accomplished. And what you and I need to realize is it doesn't all depend on us. It doesn't depend on me to make it happen. When I think that it depends on me, this ministry or that ministry or this act of service, if, no, if I don't do it, nobody will, then I'm going to be weary. Then I'm going to get wiped out. It all doesn't depend on me. It did depend on Jesus, and that's the point. He knew that. He's walking that path of tranquility, and He knows everything now is set in motion. The plan since before the foundation of the world, that is the slaying of the Lamb, was on track. And He entered the Galilee in total peace. He always had that kind of peace. My question to you is, can you rest in Him? Can you rest in Him? Note that it is in repentance and rest you will be saved. You will not save yourself through hard work. You will only be saved if you retire from the old self and you rest in the Lord Jesus. But Isaiah doesn't stop there. He goes on and he says, in quietness and trust is your strength. The word quietness, shakat, means undisturbed silence. Undisturbed. Quietness, gang, is silence before the Lord. We used to sing that old hymn when I was a kid growing up. The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before Him. And then we would sing, sing, keep silence, keep silence. Keep silence before Him. And I would always think, why don't we shut up and keep silent? (laughs) It means literally not to make a sound over your cares and your woes. David this last week, snipped his bottom lip. He was sitting there at the counter and Naomi was doing her homework, so David at the age of three had to do his homework as well. See, we're already working at the age of three. And he's sitting there with, with these little scissors, and they're protective scissors, right? They weren't the kind to hurt you. They're, they're the kind that I don't even know if they cut paper, but somehow he cut his lip with them. Where do kids come up with these ways of wounding themselves? Moms and dads? I mean, Really? What? <laughs> so he cuts his bottom lip, a shriek from the kitchen. Wah! You know, and Cheryl goes running in there. She takes a little napkin and dabs his lip, a little drop of blood. The second he saw the blood, phew, he took off. Wah! Got even more upset. And he's crying and he's wailing. What do you think Cheryl said? She said, Shh, it's okay. It's the first thing parents do when their kids get hurt. Shh, because you know, we can't stand the noise. I think it's the real issue there. I think that's why on airplanes, by the way, why, why you know when the oxygen things are supposed to come down and they tell you to put the mask on yourself first, it's so that by the time you get the mask on yourself, your child has already passed out. And then you can put the mask on them. It kind of takes care of itself there. Cheryl said, shh. There, there, shh. That is shakat. The word shakat. Be silent. But, but Father, I've got this painful problem. Shh, he says. Lord, don't you see my many wounds? Shh. There, there, he says. Jesus, tell Mary to help me. Shh. Shakat. 
Jesus said in Matthew 6.27, Who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And yet, how much energy do we expend just with words alone? I went and I tried to look that up. Someone needs to do a study on how much actual energy and calories we burn by talking. You know? Can I encourage you just to save your strength in quietness, he says. In quietness is your strength. There's strength in quietness. You're wasting your strength by your many words. You ever had a friend come to you for counsel? But they do all the talking? And I know none of us here are that way. But multiplying words. Listen, it just adds to the noise and the confusion. Switchfoot has a song uh, that I love called Adding to the Noise. And the chorus of the song says, If we're adding to the noise, turn off this song. And Cheryl and I sing this to each other all the time. (laughs) Especially after Sharon has just left our side of the house. No, I'm I'm kidding. (laughs) Shakat. If we're adding to the noise, be quiet. We sing the song Mercy Me sings. The last thing I need is to be heard, but to hear what you have to say. Because in quietness is our strength. Proverbs chapter 10 verse 14 says, Wise men store up knowledge, but with the mouth of the foolish, ruin is at hand. Proverbs 14.19 says, Where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips is wise, because in quietness is strength. By the way, right at the same time Isaiah is writing this prophecy in Isaiah 30, Hezekiah was writing something down. Hezekiah was given a word from the Lord. Psalm 46.10, Hezekiah wrote, Cease striving and know that I am God. Do you get that? Connect those two. The Lord is telling Isaiah to tell the people, in quietness and trust is your strength. And the Lord is at the same time telling Hezekiah, hey, Hezekiah, be still. Cease striving. Know that I am God. And I get the feeling that God's trying to get a word in edgewise. He's trying to get the message to the people. He goes through the prophet. He goes through the king. Shakat. Be quiet. And notice... Just as repentance comes before rest, quietness comes before trust. You've got to quiet down and listen to the Lord before you really learn to trust in the Lord. If you don't hear Him, how are you going to trust Him? The fourth word, trust, is bita in the Hebrew, and it means confidence in something true and trustworthy. Trust is certain confidence. And I, you've heard me, I rail against the idea that Christian faith is blind faith. That is so untrue. Christian faith is the most grounded faith of any faith in the world. Because Christian faith is not blind, it is not groundless, it is grounded on the trustworthy God who has proven Himself faithful and true time and time again. You can trust Him. Well, how do we know? Because He's proven it. He's shown it over and over. We could spend the rest of the day just on examples of God's faithfulness to His people Israel, to the world in general, to me personally. He always comes through. 
And I can trust in Him. I have a certain confidence in Him. Psalm 125 says, Those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. And as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forever. Quietness and trust is our strength, gang. But you would have none of it, Isaiah says to Judah. You'd have none of it, and so you're going to run. And so their foreign policy was disastrous and would leave them desolate as a flag on a mountaintop. Like, picture that. A a, a flagpole standing up on the midst of a desolate mountain with a torn flag waving in the wind, symbol of a one-time glorious people who no longer are. And it wouldn't be Assyria who takes out Judah. You know this. It was Babylon. God gave them a reprieve for a hundred years but they eventually would fall. But keep listening. Because the voice of grief here in Isaiah 30, as with so many prophecies of Isaiah, is immediately followed with the voice of grace. Look at verse 18. Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore He waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for Him. I think the King James nails this verse. Let me read it in that version. Therefore will the Lord wait. The word long and wait, same word in the Hebrew. That He may be gracious unto you. And therefore will He be exalted, that He may have mercy upon you. For the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for Him. God is waiting. He is longing to give us, to give this world grace and mercy and justice. How many of you are waiting for these things? Grace, mercy, and justice. I am. I look for these things. I long for these things. I can't wait for these things to come in the kingdom before us. But here's the key, and listen to this, the key to the whole thing today. If we're waiting for grace and mercy and justice, we will miss them. The people of Judah were looking for it. They were looking for kingdom. They were looking for justice against their enemies. Grace and mercy thrown in. They looked for these things and they missed it. Why? Because the prophet doesn't say, blessed are all those who long for grace. Or blessed are all those who long for compassion. Or blessed are all those who long for justice. What does he say? Blessed are those who long for Him. All of the theologies, all of the philosophies, all of the hopes and dreams that we might have need to get set aside that we can look directly at Jesus Christ. And not at all the fringe benefits that come with Him. The blessings that follow. But Jesus Himself, the singular key, this is it, gang, the single key to spiritual rest is waiting for Jesus. It means our retirement is in Him. It means our lying down is against Him. It means our silence is before Him. Our certain confidence, our trust, is through Him and in Him and on Him. When I wait on the Lord, I'm at rest even when I work. Let me say that again. When I wait on the Lord, I'm at rest even when I work. How exactly does that work? Turn in your Bibles over to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. 
John chapter 5, verse 1. Tells us, after these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porticos. Those of you who have been in Jerusalem, you know, just outside St. Anne's Church, you walk outside and right there, just to the north of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, is Bethesda. The pools. In fact, they found them. And there's an archaeological dig. And there are actually two pools that were right there. And you can look down and you can see the exact remnants of those pools, the stones that went around the pools that were right there in Jesus' day. There at Bethesda. So people would go there and we're told, in these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Now, this next section here, the latter part of verse 3 and part of verse 4, it's a, a belief, a superstition that was going on in the day. These people were all there waiting for the moving of the waters for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool, stirred up the water, and whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. But we're told in verse 5, a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. How long did the Israelites wander in the wilderness? Forty years, wrong. (laughs) It's okay, first hour said forty years too. Thirty-eight years. They traveled from Egypt, two years total from Egypt to Sinai, to when they came to the border at Kadesh Barnea and refused to enter the promised land. And the Bible tells us this clearly, Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 14. Now the time that it took us to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the brook Zered was thirty-eight years until all the generation of the men of war perish from within the camp as the Lord has sworn to them. Gang, listen. Why does John tell us this man has been lying by this pool for 38 years? Partially because he had been, partially because this man is a picture of Israel. This man portrays in amazing ways, in this story, a true story, a reality that happened, but he portrays for us Israel. You know, I mentioned earlier that man's first full day of existence was a holiday, right? And we started out with a break. The seventh day of creation. God did all the work and then man was invited to take a day off and rest in the Lord. Fast forward 2,500 years. What did God tell the children of Israel when He gave them the law at Mount Horeb? Don't miss this. He said, Exodus 20, verse 9, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God, and in it you shall not do any work. The law always says, work first and rest will come. Grace says, rest first, and you'll have the strength to do all the work. Jesus comes along bringing grace. The law was given through Moses, and the law was hard. And by the way, the Jewish people have just made the law harder. You can't even get on an elevator on the Sabbath day unless it is a Shabbat elevator. You know what those do? They stop at every floor so you don't have to work pushing buttons. (laughs) And I'll tell you, those buttons in Israel are exhausting. Up and down, you know. My arm's hurting. The law made work the issue. And God in the law said, be sure you take a break every seventh day because you guys, I know, the second I gave you the law, I know what's going to happen. You're going to become workaholics. 
And it's exactly what happened. What did Jesus say to Martha? He said, rest first. Sit at my feet. Mary has chosen the good part. You come to me in your rest. And Jesus came to restore rest to its rightful place, first in line in our lives. Now watch this. So the lame man, like Israel, he's been lying there for 38 years. No one to help him get in. He couldn't get into the pool. Just like Israel could not get into the promised land on their own strength. They did not have the faith. They did not have the ability to get in. Same with this man. In verse 6 it says, When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up. Pick up your pallet and walk. Watch this. Immediately the man became well. He picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath that day. Jesus did on that Sabbath what the Sabbath was all about. Giving strength to the lame. Putting legs back under a man who could not walk. Helping those who are weak and infirm. Helping us when we are exhausted. Getting us from weariness back to the place of strength. And of course, the Jews, verse 10, were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath! It is not permissible for you to carry your pallet! But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. And they asked him, Who's the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you've become well. Do not sin any more." so that nothing worse will happen to you, which implies there was some sin going on in the guy's life. I don't know what it is. How can you sin and be lying by a pool for 38 years? I don't know. Something was going on. Perhaps that caused the lameness in the first place. I don't know. But the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. How dare you? How dare you restore someone on the Sabbath day? But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Six days of creation, God was working. He creates man, He creates woman, and He says, Now, let's rest. Let's take a break. This is my heart for you. And God's been trying to restore that since the garden. Here's the irony of this story, gang, and the reason I've pointed out this morning. For 38 years, this man looked like he was resting. He laid there by the pool. And if you would have walked by, you would have said, lazy bum, he's not doing anything. He's just chilling by the pool. But I submit to you that for 38 years, he was working. He was striving until he was so burned out, he didn't know what else to do with himself. And when Jesus told him to pick up his mat, the religious establishment said he's working on the Sabbath, when for the first time in his life he was free. He was actually at rest, having been healed. And that's what grace does. Ministry, serving, caring, reaching out, it may look like work, but if it is from the Lord, if it comes from a longing for Jesus, it's not work, it's rest. And so, Isaiah 30, verse 18 tells us the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, He waits 
on high to have compassion on you, for the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for Him. John chapter 12. Meanwhile, back at Mary and Martha and Lazarus Ranch. Okay, Mary had chosen the good part in Luke chapter 10. And Jesus said, it will not be taken away from her. She's sitting at my feet. She's listening to my words. She is resting in me. This is what I want you to do, Martha. And what I find interesting is a little later on, we see what this meant in Mary's life. By resting at Jesus' feet, Mary would be in tune with Jesus. By resting at His feet, when the time came for Mary to do some ministry, she would know what ministry Jesus wanted done as opposed to what ministry Martha thought needed to have happen. Watch this. John 12, verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they made Him a supper there, and Martha was serving. There she goes. (laughs) But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with Him. Lazarus reclining now. He was deed before, but now he's reclining. Verse 3, Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped His feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Of course, Judas had a problem with it. Not even going to deal with him right now. Skip down to verse 7. Therefore Jesus said, Let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my Burial. Let me explain in the language there in the Greek. What he's saying is let her keep this custom of anointing for burial. That's what she's doing. She's anointing me for burial, Jesus says. You ever want to quiet down a room at a party? Say that. Seriously, someone has you try on some perfume and go, oh, that'll be great for my burial. I mean, I can't even imagine what was going on in the place. But you know what I really can't imagine? What was going on in Mary's mind. This would have been as weird then as it is now. Okay, we read this. Guys, you're over at a dinner party and some lady comes up to you and starts to anoint your feet. (laughs) Weird! And Mary does this and everybody's looking around. What's going on? I don't know if Mary even realized the significance of what she was doing. But listen, because she had rested at Jesus' feet, she knew now how to meet Jesus' needs. It was His needs that were being met. Martha's still over there serving, thinking that's what she needed to do. Mary comes up and anoints Jesus. Mary would be the only one among the women to properly anoint Jesus for His burial. The rest of the women would show up on Sunday morning and it was too late, He'd already resurrected. (laughs) He's already out of there. Mary, because she was in tune with the Lord, because she was listening to the Lord, because she was at rest, when the time came for a ministry, she knew what to do. She may not have understood it, but she knew. And she was the one who then would anoint Jesus. Do you get what I'm saying here? It's ministry to Jesus, not ministry for Jesus. Ministry for Jesus, not a bad thing. Lots of things we can do for the Lord. But how much better to be found ministering to the Lord. Meeting His needs. Listening to His requests. And by the way, when you're at work in the Lord, it is restful. When you're at work for yourself, it's stressful. To ask the Lord, like the Israelites should have done at Ai, Lord, should we attack? Are you with us? Is this your will? 
It's waking up and it's saying, Father, what do you need me to do today? And learning to listen to that. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, he says, and learn from me. You can't learn from Jesus if you're not resting in Jesus. I am gentle, I'm humble in heart, he says, and you will find rest for your souls. And that's what I believe Isaiah was talking about. And he invites you and he invites me to be a people who minister out of rest. Serving Jesus, not just serving the business of church. And Lord, I ask that you would give us this insight in our hearts and our spirits. Show us what it means, Lord. A lot of striving going on. And I am in the midst of the strivers. A lot of weariness, even for good reason, Father. You know that. It's not that our hearts are sour to you. We want to do all we can for you. But Father, teach us what this means. Show us how to walk this out. Give us rest even in the work. And we look forward, Lord, to that seventh day, that millennial kingdom, that kingdom of rest. Until then, may we like Mary rest in you. In Jesus' name. Amen.